back. Hi, everybody. We're back. I'm so new excited. New and Maybe. Huh? Is it new and improved? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. We'll find out. So this is our first time recording remote mm-hmm. with everyone remote. I am mm-hmm. in Jacksonville, very far away. I am in Tampa, very far away. Yeah, we're we're recording from our respective bedrooms. So what a time to be alive, the technology. So what's up? How are you? Uh, I just apologize in advance for any sniffles that you might hear because I have been a little, a little sick for like so two sorry. weeks. That's awful. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to try not to sniff, but it's very hard. My face is pain, in pain. I'm in pain. Um, but yeah. But other than that, good things are happening. Good things have happened. Tell what are me you doing? everything. Um, so I went to yoga today. Oh, uh, how'd all- you like it? So I went to a class earlier in the week where it was like a very normal, slow-paced yoga class, um, and it was early in the morning, and it was really good. And then That's cool. I went to one tonight, and it was called Yin and Nidra. So it okay. was like very slow. You get like really deep into the poses and just try uh-huh. and like hang out in that area of uncomfortability. Oh, that's not going to be Michael for, approved. For 30 minutes. No, so he was fine with that part. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, he... Then the other part of it is the Nidra part, which is a guided meditation. Fuck yeah. Which I, I had a lot of fun with. Michael fell asleep. Of course he did. He's a man. Yeah. He closed his eyes. It was after seven. Out he goes. He's done. Yeah. He's so I had to uh, tap him to wake him up. Because he's snoring. At the end. He didn't snore, thankfully. But it was, it was funny. I mean, look, he just got a little power nap in. Mm-hmm. everybody wins yeah at least he didn't toot huh at least he didn't toot he didn't be like uh he didn't do the dolphin poser <laughs> it could be worse yeah it, it was just like downward dog and like pigeon pose and oh i love a pigeon pose and you just like hang out in it for like five minutes oh i can hang out in a pigeon pose like it was it was oh, wow. nice my my hips feel good that's cool um so yeah what, what are you drinking I have, uh, you have LaCroix, don't you? No. Well, no. I did have LaCroix. I was hydrating. I actually got this in October when I was in Helen. It's from Academia Brewing or Academia Brewing. I don't know how people say it, which I forget where that is. I want to say it's like in New York or something, but that, or maybe I'm just completely wrong and it's in like Ohio or some shit, <laughs> but it's a Pilsner and it's called Shiver. Um, this is got a blurb. No, that's a government warning. <laughs> Meticulously brewed and packaged by Academia Brewing ah, in Athens, Georgia, which makes sense. I got this in Helen. Um, but yeah, it's it's cute. It's hard to like make out the art because it's like very silver, but it's yeah. got a little it's got a guy and he's riding a horse. It's like a knight riding a horse. It's cute. It's fun. Yeah, it's cute. Cool. It's got, like Greek type letters but it's cool just a regular old pilsner it's what i have in the house to be quite honest how is it it's good i've had it before um it's pretty yummy it does have a horse on it and today's story is about i have a horse do you have a horse a horse of course horse of course no but there's a horse on my beard oh all right but yeah i have have a horse in my story um so i have this 
rosé that Michael picked up at Publix because it was on sale. But look how pretty the bottle is. It's beautiful. So this is a rosé from Oregon. Uh, It's a 2021. Okay. From a, it's A to Z Oregon rosé wine. Uh, They're certified B Corp. Uh, 13% by volume. And it's like, it's a twist off cap. It's got these like little flowers and butterflies all over it. It's gorgeous. It reminds me of the wine you get from the fancy place. Yeah. Like the art and whatnot. Yeah. But it was, uh, I think it's, he said at Publix, it's normally like 15 bucks and it was on sale for eight or something. Ooh, that's a deal. Yeah. Was it buy one, get one? No, it was just $8. Like it was. And so I'm drinking it out of my fancy wine glass. Oh, it matches your cup. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Um, and it's like uh let's say it's like medium sweet rose. Okay. Yeah, this one's actually for being a Pilsner, it's still pretty bitter. It's like if a Pilsner and an IPA had a baby. All right. It's like on the hoppier side. I would say so, yes. Yeah, this is it doesn't have a ton of like complex notes, but it was an eight dollar bottle of wine, so I can't really be mad at that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, so tell the people what we're doing today, what our theme is. I did. Well, you said there was a horse. You didn't tell them. And I was like, it's animals. Oh, I didn't hear that. Well, it's okay. It's animals. <laughs> we're it's gonna be Wild out. Tales too, guys. Wild Tales Part 2. Get excited. I'm excited. I heartwarming stories. Hopefully. Mine mine have like some really sad parts, but <laughs> Yeah. So I think you both decided uh like that we you know we're gonna do two stories each. Um and so my first story isn't really heartwarming. <laughs> it has some heartwarming moments. But the second story has more heartwarming moments, I guess if you're a cat. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. The listeners will be the judge. All right. Well, I'm excited. Um, so I get. I guess we can't cheers. This is so sad. Oh no! Well, here, I'll, I'll cheers the monitor. Here you go. Yeah. Cheers. cheers. Oh, sad, sad. Sorry, sorry, team. I'll have to bring well, in like a second wine glass to <laughs> cheers by my well, damn self. I mean, it's just a microphone. I can bring this with me whenever I visit sometimes. We can still have some cheer sessions. We will. We definitely will. Yeah. It's I'll just... be up there next weekend. Yeah. Um, we do want to say thank you to our Patreons for being so supportive and patient with us. Yeah. I know we took two weeks off. Our first week up here, Michael looked at me and he's like, baby, it's new podcast Wednesday. And I was <laughs> like, you know, we haven't recorded. Yeah, you had warning, and he's like, "I'm so sad." I know. Well, I'm happy to be missed because I missed you guys too. Um, Yeah, so thank you guys, the Patreons, and all listeners for being patient while we went through some. We went through like uh, we went to Mexico. We did go to Mexico, and then we came back, and you moved. Well, no, you know, you'd move before we left. I moved. Um, uh, I, we went to Mexico. We had a debacle getting home. We made it oh home eventually gosh. after a 19 hour day. Uh, oh. And th- this is what we were supposed to talk about at the beginning of the podcast. We'll remember how to do this. Also, yeah. I don't think we said 
This is the History Woes podcast. (laughs) I'm Morgan. I'm Lexi. Sorry. We're figuring out remote recording, guys. We'll get there. Uh, We've got a lot of we got a lot of plates spinning right now. Uh, we'll figure it out. We're doing our best, guys. We're well, we're gonna get back to it. We'll get we'll get back to the groove of it once it's every week. Yeah. Um, we had two weeks off. We don't know how to act, right? I just uh, like, yeah, I just forgot all of everything I learned. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we we came back from Mexico. We 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 drove. We had to drive home from Port Lauderdale because we missed our connection because of southwest or if i'm not allowed to say southwest uh, it's an airline that rhymes with mouth test i think we can say southwest i don't know i don't know how it goes southwest oh i'm mad at them i didn't sign an nda (laughs) right i'm so mad at them right now i will not be flying you again most likely yeah fuck you southwest yeah i still feel bad for that flight attendant though that guy was yelling at yeah one guy was very upset um and thought the whole thing was a hoax against him personally (laughs) Uh, he didn't realize that everyone on the plane was inconvenienced yeah Uh, but it was interesting but we made it home you drove to tampa i drove to jacksonville from fort lauderdale uh we got home in the middle of the night but we made it safe we made it safe i got to drive a jetta which was really interesting it was really fun very peppy car I got to drive a Camry, which if I, so I love my car right now, mostly because it's paid off. Mm -hmm. Um, But after when I'm like in the market for a new car in like five years or so, uh, I might be looking at a Camry. They're pretty solid. Oh shit. Yeah. I was, I was, I was like, it was really easy to speed though in a Jetta. (laughs) It wants to go so fast. And I was letting it for quite a bit of that of that drive good at speeding in general i try not to to be honest i try not to but it was it's it's one o'clock in the morning nope there's not a lot of people on the road it's mostly highways or back roads so you're just it it, and the car wants to speed it does (laughs) it does yeah I, i expressed to my father in law that i was trying to keep it under 100 and i think he spit out his soda when I said that to him, and I was like, "Well, hi, yeah, I'm married in now, no taxi backsies." That's what I was um, trying to do. Was trying to keep it under a hundred, but like mostly, I was. I mean, I would. I mostly try to keep it under ninety, but I, I would look down and I'm like, "Oh shit!" I feel like Michael is screaming right now, saying, "Stop confessing to crimes." <laughs> it's okay. Look, I drove right by a cop. We're, we're like rappers. We we rap about our crimes and our crimes right? are speeding on empty roads. <laughs> on empty roads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so dangerous. I might <laughs> I might reach into a car and pet a dog next week. <laughs> yeah. Come tell you guys about the felony I committed. You guys don't know it yet, but Fast and the Furious, the next one's coming out, and we are the Fast and the Furious. It's us. It's us. Why why <laughs> do you think that movie's like 30% of my personality? Because I am fast and I am also furious a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, also all about family. Yeah. (laughs) Family. Um, Yeah. Okay. So Um, let's go ahead and get to the stories, I guess. Yeah. We've we've chit-chatted. Yeah. We've done the chit-chat. Do we know Um, how to do this? Yeah. So let's let's break into a story. Maybe that'll get us back in the uh, swing of things. Um, Okay. So, as I said, today I have a couple of stories, because sadly, 
most stories about animals aren't very long. But first is a story of slander <gasps> and ultimately redemption. My first story is of Mrs. O'Leary's cow. But first, we must back up a little bit. What we is the cow's name? You'll tell me later. No, so the cow had like three different names. I don't know what the cow, what the gal's name actually was. I think the one that was most used was Daisy. Daisy? Okay. Yes. But it mostly was just referred to as Mrs. O'Leary's cow. So, okay. Yeah. But first, we got to jump back a little bit. We start our st- we start our story in Chicago on October eighth, Illinois six zero six five two. I'm sorry. Is that a rap lyric? No, it's from the Scruff McGruff <laughs> uh, thing. <laughs> That's way better. Oh, okay. <laughs> McGruff, Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. 60652. I love that so much more. Uh, but no, uh, he's, he's not there. Sorry. He's not there. If he had been, this probably would have done much, may, may have gone differently than it does. Um, so, but we're in Chicago on October 8th, 1871. Uh, still a large city, though not as we know it today. Chicago was for the 1800s a bustling metropolis. But later that night, a tragedy would befall the city. October 8th was the day that the great Chicago fire would begin. <gasps> no! no! I know. The fire is claimed to have uh, started at about 8.30 p.m. in or around a small barn belonging to the O'Leary family that bordered the alley behind 137 West DeCoven Street. I'm sorry, it was her cow, the arsonist? Uh, well, you know, you're going to have to find out. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm here. Uh, because I'm well, I'm like, well, it's a, in the it's story. a sore subject. It's a sore <laughs> subject. <laughs> the shed next to the barn was the first building to be consumed by the fire. The fire spread rapidly through the city due to a long drought from the summer, and the city had only received an inch of rain from July 4th to October 8th, which is oh shit, we're up to October 8th. Um, there were also strong winds from the southwest. It is the windy city. Uh, which carried embers into the heart of the city, and the city water, the city's water pumping system, was quickly destroyed by the fire. Oh no! Uh, the fire spread was also aided by the city's use of wood as the predominant building material. More than two thirds of the structures in Chicago at the time of the fire were made entirely of wood, with most of the houses and buildings being topped with highly combustible tar or shingle roofs. Oh dear. Yes, all the city sidewalks and many roads were also made of wood. Which I didn't know they were making roads. I'm sorry, did you just say they were making roads out of wood? Yeah, that's what it said. Look, according to Wikipedia, (laughs) I'll have to double check it later. But yeah, I don't know if you were living here when Guazi first opened. I was. The the wooden roller coaster at Bush Gardens in Tampa. Yeah. Uh, when it first opened, it was very nice and very smooth. And in the process of about a summer and a half, yeah, that bitch would send your spine out of alignment <laughs> as a 12-year-old. I was going to say, yeah, even as a teenager, that Like did that. when you were young, it would mess up yeah. your spine. Yeah. I can't imagine that being really good building material for a road. Yeah, you know, I don't think so. I mean, I guess maybe they were used to clanky rides. I think 
That's true. I guess they weren't. I guess everything else would have been like cobblestone or some shit. So yeah, cobblestone. And then I guess, you know, only I think only rich people might have had cars at this point. Or I don't know if cars are invented yet. Cars were invented, but. Uh yeah, eighteen seventies. So I think yeah, there's some cars Wait, maybe, but like I thought you said nineteen thirteen. Eighteen seventy one. All right. So yeah, not certain now if the car is clunking around yet. So, uh, but most people are going to be in horse drawn things. So probably clunky rides all around. All right. I don't know if the wood helped if it was an improvement or or not, but yeah, sadly for Chicago, there's wood everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been much speculation over the years on how the fire started. Most popular tale blames Mrs. O'Leary's cow, who allegedly, allegedly knocked over a lantern in the barn. Other tales say that a group of men were gambling inside the barn and knocked over a lantern or some boys were sneaking a smoke in the barn. Also, spontaneous combustion, a meteor. My money is on gamblers, but that's just me. Also, a meteor? What? And um, scandalously, that the cow acted alone. I don't. <laughs> she was just like, "Fuck this barn and fuck this city." Done. I'm done yeah. walking on these wooden ass roads. Do you know how many splinters I have? <laughs> yeah, She's maybe. done. She's know. over it. Maybe. Um, I'm going with so, the cow as a mastermind. I don't. I don't. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. But she didn't think it through. Um, in 1871, the Chicago Fire Department had 185, 185 firefighters with 17 horse-drawn steam pumpers to protect the entire city, which is not a whole lot for Chicago, even at the time. Rookie numbers. Um, and, though, yeah. and though the firefighters reacted quickly, uh, they were sent to the wrong place, which allowed the fire to keep spreading. Oh, dear. Um, an alarm... Yeah, an alarm sent to the area near the fire also failed to register at the courthouse where the fire watchmen were. On top of that, the firefighters were already tired from having fought numerous small fires and one large fire the week before. So, Because they have had no rain. Yeah. Um, And so when firefighters did get to Coven Street, uh, the fire had grown and spread to neighboring buildings and was progressing toward the central business district. Firefighters had hoped that the south branch of the Chicago River in an area that had previously thoroughly burned would act as a natural fire break. Except all along that part of the river were lumber yards, warehouses, coal yards, barges, and numerous bridges across the river. Oh, no. Yeah. It's just the start. This gets weird. Um, as the <laughs> Yeah. As the fire grew, the southwest wind intensified and became superheated, causing structures to catch fire just from the heat alone. Uh, And there's also fires being started from burning debris being uh, debris blown by the wind. Um, Around midnight, flaming debris blew across the river and landed on the roofs of the south side gas works. Uh, It's not good for for fire. No. Um, and you're a person nearby. Uh, with the fire across the river and moving rapidly toward the heart of the city, a lot of panic set in, which, sure. About this time, Mayor Roswell B. Mason sent messages to nearby towns asking for help. When the courthouse cut fire, he ordered the building to be evacuated and the prisoners that were jailed in the basement to be released. At 2.30 a.m. on the 9th, the cupola of the courthouse collapsed and 
It sent the large bell in it crashing down, and some witnesses reported hearing that sound from a mile away. Oh, no. A major... This is wild. I've heard of it before, but it's just a very unlucky... It's a very unfortunate series of events. Uh, A major contributing factor to the fire's spread was a meteorological phenomenon known as a fire whirl. What? So... As what the over fuck is a fire whirl? I'm going to tell you. It's wild. Okay, I good, because it I... It's, it's weird. It's, I'm yeah. terrified uh, and incredulous about this. Yeah, it's we well, should be. Uh, so basically, as that overheated air rises, it comes into contact with cooler air and begins to spin, creating okay. a tornado-like effect. These nope. fire... Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a fire tornado. Uh, I don't like so, that. Yeah, me neither. And I bet people in Chicago really hated it. <laughs> Um, them so more than most <laughs> probably yeah uh, so these fire whirls are likely what drove the flaming debris so high and so far uh, such debris was blown across the main branch of the Chicago River to a railroad carrying kerosene uh, the fire Whoa. had jumped the river a second time and was now raging across the city's north this side this is so unfortunate yeah, I was, I wrote, I was like, this seems almost biblical at this point. Like, yeah. it seems like Chicago got smoked. It seems like a Michael Bay film. Right. Like, I'm sorry. I guess like, that's also like fire. the Bible, but. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's like this little mini fire and then it's, there's a fire tornado. It's landing on the gas plant. It's landing on the kerosene. It's just landing everywhere you really wouldn't want. Lemony Snicket wrote this because it <laughs> is truly a series of unfortunate events. Right. It's wild. Um, so despite the fire spreading growing rapidly, the city's firefighters continued fighting the fire. Uh, a short time after the fire jumped the river, a burning piece of timber lodged on the roof of the city's waterworks. So within minutes, the interior of the building was engulfed in flames and the building was destroyed. And with that, the city's water mains went dry and the city was helpless. Oh my gosh. <sighs> Finally, late into the evening, of October 9th. So it's been raging for a fucking day. It starts to rain. Um, but the fire had already kind of started to burn itself out. The fire had spread to the sparsely populated areas of the north side, having completely consumed the densely populated areas of Chicago. Once the fire had ended, the remains were still too hot for a survey of the damage to be completed for several days. Eventually, the city determined that the fire destroyed an area of about four miles long, and averaging three quarters mile wide, encompassing an area of more than 2,000 acres. Um, more than 73 miles of road, 120 miles of sidewalk, 2,000 lampposts, 17,500 buildings, and 222 million in property, which was about a third of the city's valuation in 1871, was all destroyed. Holy shit. Yeah, that's a lot. That's insane. The, yeah. The aftermath of the fire to protect the city from looting and violence, though what they would be looting, I do not know. Uh, the city was put under martial law for two weeks under General uh, Sheridan's command with a mix of regular troops, militia unit, units, police, and especially organized civilian group named the 1st Regiment of Chicago Volunteers. Oh, no. Of the approximately 324,000 inhabitants of Chicago in 1871, 90,000 Chicago residents, which is one in three, were left homeless. 120 bodies were recovered, but the death toll may, may have been as high as 300. Jesus. The county coroner speculated that 
an accurate count was impossible as some victims may have drowned like getting into the river to get away from the flames or had just been incinerated leaving no remains that's awful in the days and weeks following the fire this this is a bit heartwarming i I did like this part monetary donations flowed into, into chicago from around the country and abroad along with donations of food clothing and other goods these donations came from individuals corporations and cities New York City gave $450,000 along with clothing and provisions. St. Louis gave $300,000. And the Common Council of London gave 1,000 guineas as well as 7,000 pounds from private donations. What's the difference between guineas and pounds? I don't know. London gave 1,000 and another 7,000 monies. Um, In Greenwich, Scotland, and this is sweet, a uh, population of only 40,000, they raised 518 pounds in one meet, in one town, Aww, meeting, which is a lot nice. at that time. So yeah. it's uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Buffalo, all commercial rivals of Chicago, do- donated hundreds and thousands of dollars. Milwaukee, along with other nearby cities, helped by sending firefighting equipment, uh, food, clothing, and books were brought by train from all over the continent. After the fire, uh, A.H., this is just kind of a fun tidbit about how this got started, but I don't know why he thought they would want books, but he did. After the fire, A.H. Burgess of London proposed an English book donation to spur a free library in Chicago. In their sympathy with Chicago over the damages suffered, libraries in Chicago had been private with membership fees. In April 1872, the city council passed the ordinance to establish the Free Chicago Public Library starting with the donation from the United Kingdom of more than 8,000 books. That's nice. So I think it probably would have been a big deal then because your house is gone, TV doesn't exist, and also yeah, if you don't have clothes, you have no other form of entertainment. Like, you can't go do anything. Yeah, fair enough. So they're like, let's get books together. And they yeah. sent those books. They sent a lot of books. And then they got a free library, which was nice. That's nice. I love that. Me too. I just also Um, love libraries, but... Me too. (laughs) Um, The fire also led to questions about development in the United States. Due to Chicago's rapid expansion at that time, the fire led to Americans reflecting on industrialization. Based on a religious point of view, some said that Americans should return to a more old-fashioned way of life and that the fire was caused by people ignoring traditional morality. On the other hand, (sighs) others believed that a lesson was to be learned from the fire... um, and that was that cities needed to improve their building techniques. Luckily, Wild. <laughs> luckily the cities sided uh, with learning new building techniques. And almost immediately, the city began to rewrite its fire standards, spurred by yeah. the efforts of leading insurance executives. You can imagine their motives. And fire prevention What reformers. do you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chicago soon developed one of the country's leading firefighting forces. Hell yeah. In 1956, the remaining structures of the original O'Leary property at 558 West DeCoven Street were torn down for construction of the Chicago Fire Academy, a training facility for Chicago firefighters known as the Quinn Fire Academy or Chicago Fire Department Training Facility. A bronze sculpture was uh, of stylized flames um, entitled Pillar of Fire by sculptor Egan Weiner was erected on the point of origin in 1961. So as mentioned earlier, there are numerous theories as to how the fire started, with the most enduring being that Mrs. O'Leary's cow caused the fire by kicking over a lantern 
while Mrs. O'Leary was milking the cow. The O'Leary family denied this, um, stating they were in bed before the fire started. But stories of the cow began to spread across the city. Catherine O'Leary appeared to be the perfect scapegoat in Chicago at this time. She was a poor Irish Catholic immigrant. She was a scapegoat cow. Scapegoat cow, exactly. (laughs) Um, So Mrs. O'Leary is a poor Irish Catholic immigrant. uh, And during the latter half of the 19th century, anti-Irish sentiment was strong throughout the United States, including Chicago. This intensified as a result of growing political power of the city's Irish population. The city was also distrustful of Catholics. So as an Irish Catholic, Mrs. O'Leary was a target of both anti-Catholic and anti-Irish sentiment. Yep. The story was noted in the Chicago Tribune's first post-fire issue. And though the writer retracted his story in 1893 by admitting it was fabricated, the O'Leary's and the slandered cow who died in the fire never got a rest from the legend despite never being officially charged with starting the fire. But the story became... Huh? You want an uncomfortable thought? If you're about to say at some point that cow was perfectly cooked... (laughs) No. Alright, never mind. I'll fuck right off. Also, since I'm just interrupting your story at this point. Uh, <laughs> Are you the interrupting cow? I, now I am. <laughs> no. Um, no. My, hell yeah, uh, very excitedness at Chicago Fire. My grandpa was a Chicago firefighter before he moved down to Florida. Oh, that's cool. So, I don't think he was involved in this one, probably. No, no, not this one. But anyway, go Chicago Fire. Cool. Anyway, yeah. go on. Go Chicago Firefighters. Woot and firefighters in general, but Hell your grandfather yeah. specifically, especially um, you know my grandpa, our buddy Jay, yeah, and all the ones that pose with kittens for that calendar. They're out there doing the Lord's work. They have kittens. They have puppies. They have like they've expanded their animal selection <laughs> to like turtles. Bring and us the and emus. Rabbits. <laughs> the emus. <laughs> Oh, well, wander. you know, it sounds like, honestly, they should probably do one with cows. I think they should. I think that the, the cow get their good name back. Yeah. So, sorry. Tell yeah. us more about the O'Leary's and the cow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, they, despite, so they never got a rest from this legend, despite never being officially charged with starting the fire. Uh, but the story became so ingrained in local lore, lore that Chicago City Council had to officially exonerate the family and the cow in 1997. (laughs) Uh, But by this time, the legend was a mainstay of American folklore. The poor cow had become the subject of a Norman Rockwell painting. (gasps) On the anniversary of the fire, local parades would feature a woman dressed up as Mrs. O'Leary leading a cow. Uh, The winner of the National Trophy in the 1960 Tournament of Roses Parade whose grand marshal that year was Vice President Richard Nixon. Uh, the, <laughs> the prize was the City of Chicago float, on which Ms. O'Leary's barn, complete with lantern, simulated fire, genuine smoke, and a carnation and chrysanthemum cow. <laughs> the disrespect. I know! Poor Daisy. She doesn't get any fucking... I'm Ms. O'Leary, to be fair. 
<laughs> she probably suffered more than the cow did honestly she did because she survived and people were really mean to her and like always depicted her as like this like ugly old imagine people lady. just passing you though for the rest of your life and they're like thanks o'leary <laughs> right i know it's it's terrible everyone um, hates you seriously um, Anthony DiBartolo uh, reported uh, evidence in two articles of the Chicago Tribu Tribune in the 90s, suggesting that Louis M. Cohn uh, may have started the fire during a craps game. Following his death in 1942, Cohn... Did you say craps or crafts? Craps. Craps. Okay. Right right out of yeah. Sorry, I thought it was like hot glue guns that just went <laughs> wild. Maybe. I don't think so. I think he was playing a craps game. Um... So, but after his death, after Cohn's death, he bequeathed $35,000, which was assigned to the Metal School of Journalism at Northwestern University. The bequest was given to the school on September 28, 1944, and the declaration and the dedication contained a claim by Cohn to have been present at the start of the fire. According to Cohn, on the night of the fire, he was gambling in the O'Leary's barn with one of their sons and some other neighborhood boys. When Mrs. O'Leary came out to the barn to chase the gamblers away at around nine o'clock, they knocked over a lantern. Uh, this argument, though, is not universally accepted. Um, it's not sus. Amateur historian Richard Bales, and I agree with him, has suggested the fire was started by none other than Daniel Pegleg Sullivan. That peg-legged son of a gun. <laughs> And he was him. the first reporter of the fire. Um, and he, so he basically said he ignited hay in the barn while trying to steal milk. What a um, shit. <laughs> right. So part of the evidence includes an account by Sullivan who claimed to be, who claimed in an inquiry before the fire department of Chicago on November 25th, 1871. And he saw a fire coming through the side of the barn and ran across to Coben Street to free the animals from the barn one of which included the cow owned by the Sullivans. Bale's account does not have a consensus, though the Chicago Public Library staff criticizes his account on their webpage on the fire. Uh, despite this, the Chicago City Council was convinced of this argument and stated that the actions of Sullivan on that day should be scrutinized after the O'Leary family was exonerated in 1970, um hell yeah investigate that shit a hundred <laughs> plus years later when we yeah, peg like shit <laughs> peg like mm. sullivan bring that um, peg leg to justice losing <laughs> one leg wasn't enough take both <laughs> call him no leg sullivan <laughs> perfect um <laughs> uh that concludes my story hell, on the false <laughs> accusations of Miss O'Leary's cow. Um, and because uh, that story was a bit sad and the cow died. Um, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Yeah. Let's have a moment of silence for Daisy. Yeah, Daisy. All Thanks. right, back at it. Okay. Um, so now we're going to wrap up my time with the story of Unsinkable Sam. Um, <gasps> I'm <laughs> so excited. Me too. I love this story so Me much. Me too. It's so, so short. But I love it. But it, but it's ah, uh, ah. Uh, you guys Very can't see me. I'm doing the chef's kiss hands. They're so good. Tell me everything so about Unsinkable I Sam. I will. I will. Unsinkable Sam was a black and white cat originally named Oscar, but would later be known as Unsinkable Sam. 
he started his quote-unquote career in the fleet of the Nazi. Okay, let's not diminish his accomplishments. With okay, well, air he started quotes. off. He started off in the Nazi regime, so we're just gonna. Everyone's got to start somewhere. Don't ever let anyone tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no one starts in glory. We only end there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so he started his career there and ended it in the Royal Navy. Uh, so at least he turned himself around. Um. Sam was aboard the Bismarck, which was the first of two Bismarck-class battleships built for Nazi Germany's Kriegsmarine. Uh, named after Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, the battleship was launched on February 14, 1939. The Bismarck was involved in a battle with the Prince of Wales, and Adel- <laughs> which is silly because it sounds like he's fighting, like the ship is fighting the Prince of Wales. But so he's that not was an- fighting William? <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it's an allied battleship, um, and the Bismarck was badly damaged and became unmaneuverable. I prefer to think of them fighting William's bald ass head, <laughs> Me personally. Too. Me too. I'm just going to um, hold on to that. You go ahead. <laughs> also, real quick, do we think Sam was like, <laughs> you know that meme where the cat is like mine watermelon? Mm-hmm. And the cat's really angry looking. Do we think he's that cat? Maybe. He could in, be. In my head, he is. Go on. Okay. Well, I don't see why we should correct that in any way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the ship would eventually sink and only 118 from its crew of over 2,200 survived. Hours later, Sam was found floating on a board and picked up from the water. He was the only survivor to be rescued by homeward bound British destroyer HMS Cossack. The crew didn't know the cat's name and called him Oscar. Um, So basically this means there's, uh, so from from what I've read here, there are 118 people in the fucking water and then there's Sam on, and I I totally understand why they did this, uh, but Sam (laughs) is on a board and the people on the HMS Cossack just scooped up Sam. I imagine said fuck off to everyone else in the water and then just went on home. Okay, so. so hear me out. Look, I, yeah, I mean, in their Nazis. defense, <laughs> they were Nazis. Ex- yeah, what are you gonna do? You know, so um, I, you know, I, I kind of feel America as a whole could take that stance on a bit more. <laughs> I think where so we too. focus more on saving the cats and saying <laughs> "fuck the Nazis, go die." I, um, I, I, yeah, you know, it's the opinion so, of this podcast. We could use more of that attitude in the world. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so feeling very grateful to his rescuer, Sam switched sides and joined the Allied cause. Uh, what a, what a good cat. I know. Uh, Sam served on board the Cossack for the next few months as the ship carried out convoy escort duties in the Mediterranean and North Atlantic. Oh, so Things he's just chilling pretty- in Greece. He's having a great fucking time. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, so things are like, oh yes this is living <laughs> free fish all the time <laughs> um so things went pretty smoothly for a brief period but ultimately the destroyer was badly damaged by a torpedo and 139 members of its crew were killed oh no on october 27 1941 the cossacks sank uh to the west of gibraltar and oscar was found clinging to a piece of plank he was rescued again and brought to the shore establishment of Gibraltar. When they learned what happened, British officers changed his name from Oscar to Unsinkable Sam. Unsinkable Sam, then un- then adopted by the crew of the HMS Ark Royal, 
Mm -hmm. ironically, a ship that was instrumental in sinking the Bismarck. Um, Ark Royal survived near several near misses and gained a reputation as a very lucky ship. The Germans incorrectly reported her as sunk on multiple occasions. But unfortunately, the luck does not last. And when returning from Malta on November 14th, 1941, the ship was torpedoed by a U-boat. Are we sure Sam changed (laughs) sides? He's he's there with his little paws doing once is coincidence, twice is happenstance, thrice is sabotage. (laughs) I don't remember who said that, but someone did. (laughs) It was unsinkable Sam. (laughs) He said it was twas I. (laughs) Twas I said the ship's a place. He's just doing little little Morse code messages with his paws. <laughs> you know they're like the good paws, like they have the little tufts of fur coming out from under them. Like Nazis are bad, Sam. Don't do that. But arguably, probably the best Nazi. <laughs> well, duh, yeah, he would have been. But he, no, I, I, I have faith in Sam. He switched sides. Uh, it doesn't just, sound like it. I've got to be well, honest. I'm real suspect on Sam right now. Well, you're gonna hear how he was found in this next time, and maybe you'll change your mind because I don't think this is the this is the actions of someone who would have had. Uh, this reaction to this. So this time Sam was found clinging to a floating plank by a motor launch and described as, quote, angry, but quite unharmed. Okay, yeah, but when have you met a Nazi that was happy? <laughs> That's fair. Just I guess I, they would be happy if they just they just sunk their second ship, I imagine. But uh but yeah, so he was he's pretty mad by this point. Um and uh, he's he's had enough, and he retires from the sea life. Uh, um, he was transferred to a job on land and spent his days hunting mice in the building of the governor general in Gibraltar. Eventually, he reporting was sent... on his duties to the Nazis. <laughs> Eventually, he was sent back to the UK, where he remained happily at a home for sailors in Belfast until 1955, and the end of his earthly days. A pastel portrait of Sam, titled Oscar the Bismarck's Cat, by artist Georgina Shaw Baker, is in the possession of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. And that is the story of Unsinkable Sam. Question. Yes? Do do we think your Nana perhaps met Unsinkable Sam in Belfast? I would like to believe so. I'm going to enter that into your family lore. Not my family, not my lore, but here I am entering that in. Close enough. Close enough. Yep, yep, yep. Like at one of the many dances she got to attend? Yes. Sam was just there hanging out. Some Mm -hmm. One of the sailors was like, you know, I bet ladies love a cat. (laughs) And he was right. And Sam was like, yo, homie, I've got my own agenda. I've got to go get some (laughs) intel on these ladies. Goodbye. (laughs) Left that man alone. But Nan... Nana, sorry, not Nan, uh, wrong grandmother, was like, I would like to pet this cat. And then your grandmother got to pet Unsinkable Sam. This is family lore now. It is canon. It's Nana just it's how seat. it was. It's how it went. It's how it went. <laughs> I'll hear nothing else. Uh, yeah, so those are my stories. I, I yeah, I was, it, the, the, the cow one uh, was a bit sad, but the story was interesting. Um, yeah fire tornadoes there's like it's landing on everything that's flammable and combustible and then but you wrap it up with unsinkable sam yeah unsinkable sam is truly one of the best stories 
He's a ever. great cat. I don't think he enjoyed the story very much, but no, he got um, wet a lot. But also, <laughs> that's what you get for being a Nazi, Sam. <laughs> uh, I am refilling oh my, my wine right now. And so for you today, uh-huh. I have mm-hmm. two stories. I'm very excited. Both of which are uh, winners, awardees, I don't know what to call it, of the Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery. Okay, I'm already crying. Yeah, it's... Uh, I. <laughs> I cried so much writing these. That's it, okay. Um, it, it's a problem. That's okay. I'll probably uh, cry. Yeah. But probably. Today, I'm going to tell you the stories of two war heroes mm-hmm. to make this an official History Woes episode. Since we're doing it recording, I had to throw it back. Mm-hmm. And also because we are contractually obligated to mention it as much as possible. Yep. Our first story takes place during World War One. Say it. <laughs> World War One. We're back. <laughs> back in the trenches. Specifically, and I'm going to butcher this name, and I'm sorry. Uh, I could do research on how to pronounce things, and yet I don't. <laughs> That's fine. Specifically, we are in the Meuse River Argonne Forest Offensive Area. Is it pronounced like that? Probably not. That's probably pretty close. Well, great. <laughs> <laughs> this was one part of the Hundred Days Offensive, in which Allied forces were trying to take back some of the land that Germans had won in the springtime. Cue springtime okay. with Hitler. Ooh, uh, I was just thinking in my house like springtime. Nope, nope, don't like that. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> Uh, but this was World War One, so I guess not. Yeah. Uh, well, so no, he's still there. He is. Yeah. But anyway, probably not in Germany though. Probably go watch the producers, guys. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so the Meuse Argonne Offensive stretched along the Western Front and ended up lasting forty-seven days, from September twenty-sixth, nineteen eighteen, until the Armistice of November eleventh, nineteen eighteen. This was the largest offensive in U.S. military history and the deadliest battle in the history of the U.S. Army to date, with over 350,000 casualties. Oh, partly because... Sorry? I just was lamenting on the cause for World War I once again, Ah, and the generation of butchered people. Uh, Partly because of the general brutality of World War One, yeah. But also, these American troops in this region were very inexperienced, yeah. And this was also mid outbreak of Spanish influenza. Ooh, yeah. What a Which, terrible time. Fun fact: actually originated on a military base in Kentucky. Yeah, but we don't Not like to talk about to that. Yeah. So we're in this offensive and. The Lost Battalion, or the U.S. 77th Division, is a part of this offensive. It consists of 554 men under the command of Major Charles White Whittlesey. 
And when I say these men are inexperienced, I mean some of them had never even thrown a grenade before. On October 2nd, these men were able to advance into enemy territory through a ravine. And they were surrounded by bluffs, 20 elephants high. (laughs) But their supply lines weren't able to move forward with them. So these men had no experience, no communications, no food, and no water. Uh They ended up surrounded by Germans who were firing on them from the tops of the bluffs. Oh! Yeah. To make matters worse, the other allies didn't know where they were because they didn't have comms. So because they're in enemy territory, they're receiving fire from the enemy and they're also receiving friendly fire at this point. (sighs) Whittlesey had tried to send runners to let the people on their side know, hey, we're here. Uh, But they had all either been captured or killed. So in an act of desperation, he tried to send a messenger pigeon, which had been donated by the British to the U.S. Army, which for a moment, wild to fucking think about running through a fucking war zone with a bird cage. (laughs) And the bird just being like, oh, oh, oh my God. Could you you imagine being a pigeon? Like you, you're a, bird you don't know what's going on and i'm not even the best bird you know like i'm a pigeon i'm doing my best right right like, well, I'm real quick we do have the best pigeon ever in this story but no i and i and i i do know that there's a pigeon coming and that it is the best pigeon but like you're already giving a bad shake right because you're a fucking pigeon and you're like oh everyone's like oh i just love hawks i love owls and they're like no one's like oh i love the pigeon so you're already <laughs> just doing your best Okay, it's, it's like only the lady from Home Alone 2 that appreciates these. Exactly. So you're doing your best. And you're taking World War One. You're in a bird cage. There's mines. There's barbed wire. There's everything all over there's the place. Gunfire. People are shooting at you, and you're just a bird. But also, and you're like, I have hollow bones. But also, someone's in charge of that bird. Yeah, like someone is like tasked with like, <laughs> all right, you're the bird man. <laughs> but not in the fun rap way like you're right right i assume it's kind of the same people are like you're gonna play the drums in the in the army yeah or the like, trumpet. You're a drum guy you're yeah. gonna be the loudest guy or you're and the this flag guy's... guy yeah so like, very visible so you've got like your drums like you're very loud and there's like your pigeon guy and it's like wild sorry i was, I was reading this and i was like who the fuck it's like yo hold up can we reinforce this cage <laughs> oh wild. My anyway so the first pigeon sent had a note tied to him saying many wounded we cannot evacuate that pigeon was shot down oh no a second pigeon was sent with a note saying, I don't know why he didn't just like repeat the same message, but that's fine. Uh, with a note saying, men are suffering. Can support be sent? But that pigeon was also shot down. Devastated. On October 3rd, Whittlesey has to try one last time. And he looks at a pigeon who I can only assume had a little helmet on. 
Yeah. And is like ready for this shit. Really wondering where his two friends have got to. <laughs> right. And <laughs> so Will's where team. are Rick and George right now? Like <laughs> right. where where are they? Because I thought they said they would said they would be back by now. They said they would be right back. They don't not. understand. So. But Whittlesey is like, hey bird, you up for this? And the bird is like, first of all, <laughs> my name isn't Bird, it's Cheryl Me. Put some respect <laughs> on my name. And yes, get me some suppressing fire and let's do this shit, friend. Bird's like, cover me. <laughs> so the bird, I assume, straps on his little helmet. And yes. then uh, Whittlesey straps a message to share Ami's leg saying, we are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. <laughs> Jeremy took flight as the soldiers sent up suppressing fire so he could get away. Sadly, though, the Germans spotted him. (gasps) Jeremy was shot down. (gasps) But Jeremy was a badass. And he got back up and took flight again. And he flew 25 miles in 25 minutes. Oh, to shit. his loft at Division HQ. He's hauling ass, dude. He said, I know what happened to Rick and George. I ain't going out like this. I'm hauling <laughs> yep. ass. Not me, not <laughs> today. doing a mile a minute. Mm-hmm. 60 like, miles an hour. The fastest pigeon this? in the West. Oh my gosh. He had been shot through the breast, blinded <gasps> in one eye, and had one leg hanging by only a tendon. Oh, he got fucked up. But he made it. He made it. I gosh, badass pigeon. If I Army. had like a like a like a twisted ankle, I wouldn't be able to make it like five <laughs> yards. I'm not gonna sit down. <laughs> Tell them yourself. Yeah, we're, we're not meant for war. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so pigeon is better for it than I am. <laughs> Army medics worked tirelessly to save his little pigeon life, and he survived. When he was healed enough, the now one-legged feathered friend was put on a boat to return to the United States. He was seen off by General Pershing himself. Cherami became the hero of the lost battalion. He gave the battalion's location to commanders, but it wasn't the end of the struggles for the 77th. They were stuck. They were still stuck waiting for a few days. They had to fend off attacks from Germans who had snipers, grenades, and in one reported instance, a fucking flamethrower. Yeah, those are, yeah. Wild. Brutal. Yeah. On October 7th, Germans sent over a blindfolded American prisoner of war, Private Lowell R. Hollingshead, who was carrying a white flag with a message that read, the suffering of your wounded men can be heard over here in the German lines, and we are appealing to your humane sentiments to stop. A white flag shown by one of your men will tell us you agree with these conditions. Please treat Private Lowell R. Hollingshead, the bearer, as an honorable man. He is quite a soldier, and we envy you. Whittlesey's response was, you go to hell. Okay. All right. I mean, yeah, let's. This is such a stupid fucking war. Mm-hmm. But okay. 
He ordered the white sheets that had been laid out for Allied aircraft to spot to hopefully drop supplies, be pulled up, lest they be mistaken as a white flag of surrender. That night, though, a relief force, armed with the information Jeremy had brought them, was able to locate the battalion, and the Germans were forced to retreat. Of the 554 troops sent in, 107 had been killed, 63 were missing, 190 were wounded, and only 194 men were able to walk out of the ravine. Ugh. That's awful. Whittlesey received a battlefield promotion to lieutenant colonel, and upon returning to the U.S., received the Medal of Honor for Valor. But he ultimately has a really sad ending and ends up committing suicide a few years later. But he wasn't the only one to receive medals for his valor. Jeremy, our brave little friend, was awarded the Croix de Guerre medal. I'm going to, I don't know how to say that right. Uh, With a palm oak leaf clusters for his heroic service in the war. And... He received a medal from the Organized Bodies of American Racing Pigeon Fanciers. <laughs> Posthumously, he went on to be inducted into the Racing Pigeon Hall of Fame in 1931. <gasps> and in 2019, he became one of the first winners of the Animals and War and Peace Medal of Bravery. In the 1920s and 30s, Cherami was well known as well known as any human hero of World War I to American children. He was taxidermied and put on display at the National Museum of National History. The Smithsonian spent a while trying to confirm that Cherami was in fact the messenger pigeon from the Lost Battalion. Ooh. But military records were lacking, and they only listed that he was a male pigeon. So, in 2021, the National Museum of American History, along with the National Museum of History and the Smithsonian's National Zoo, had Cherami's DNA analyzed to confirm that the the one-legged bird on display was, in fact, male. If you'd like to go visit our one-legged little hero, he's currently on display with another podcast fan favorite from Episode 8, Sergeant Stubby. Sergeant Stubby, they're together <laughs> at the National Museum of American History in the Price of Freedom exhibit. Uh, we get when we visit Simone, we gotta go look. We gotta see them. We gotta take photos with them. Like, uh, yeah. look, they're there. These are them. These Absolutely. are the guys. Oh my gosh. Oh. And that is the devastating and also heartwarming story of Jeremy. Yeah little guy i really hope that is the right share of me because otherwise someone is blinded and cut off and then shot through the chest and lost a leg right like shit like one of like the 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 black pigeons with the pretty like i don't yeah like the ones that look like this sounds terrible not the way you want but like how they like he's been dipped in oil with like the purple to green yes 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 uh, gradient I saw him when I was looking up animals and I saw it said the name and you'd already tell me what you're doing. And I saw him and I was like, Ooh, scroll, 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 scroll. scroll. <laughs> but yeah. I saw him. He is so he's, he's good. quite the specimen. Quite, so good. Quite, what a man. What, what a, man, a man. What a man. And what a mighty good man. <laughs> yes. So now we're going to hop into our wibbly wobbly timey wimey machine and <laughs> jump 
from the First World War to the Korean War. Okay. I think everyone knows the Korean War was pretty horrific and the collateral damage was really fucking high. Yeah. So our story starts with a young stable boy reportedly named Kim Huck Moon, which I think would be in the American way of naming uh, Huck Moon Kim. Okay. Uh, okay. But this is likely not his real name. Uh, but this boy was selling a horse for $250. Why was this stable boy looking to sell a horse, you ask? Mm-hmm. Well, his little sister's leg had been blown off when she stepped on a fucking landmine. And she yeah. needed a prosthetic leg. Yeah, it's still pretty fucking horrific, sadly. It's still using flamethrowers, still using mines, all, all of it still. Yeah. yeah. Prosthetic legs just so happened to cost $250. Yay, war. Anyway, Huck Moon is looking to sell this horse that looks to be a mix of a thoroughbred and a Mongolian. She's all brown with a white blaze and three stockings. A blaze is the mark that goes down the middle of a horse's face, like nose to ears, okay. um, and stockings. So the names change as like as high up as the marks go. But uh-huh. a stocking is from when the marking goes from the hoof to like their knee elbow area. Okay, um, that's called a stocking. Okay, uh, and the horse was originally named Atsimhai, which mm-hmm. translates to morning flame. That's pretty. Uh, Hakamoon had nicknamed her Flame. Oh. A Marine, Lieutenant Eric Penderson. Sorry, one second. A Marine named Lieutenant Eric Penderson Mm -hmm. took Hakamoon up on his offer and purchased the horse with the permission of his colonel for his platoon. And it said that Hakamoon cried seeing her leave. The Marines, upon getting her, renamed her Reckless. And she was a small horse, only about 14 hands, which is an insane unit of measurement. A hand is considered to be about four inches. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like the, I guess, what was thought of to be a standardized width of a hand. Okay. Uh, And it measures horses from their hoofs to their shoulders. Uh, This translates, for our listeners, uh, to her being about one half of an elephant. (laughs) <laughs> Penderson was in the recoilless rifle platoon and they needed a horse that could carry up to nine 24 pound shells used in recoilless rifles which was basically a big ass gun typically yeah. mounted to the top of a jeep uh, her primary trainer and the person Reckless was closest to uh, was platoon gunnery sergeant Joseph Latham uh, Private First Class Monroe Coleman was her primary caretaker. Navy Hospitalman First Class George Doc Mitchell uh, provided the majority of the medical care for Reckless. When she got to camp, Reckless was bootless, and thus she could not go through boot camp. <laughs> Instead, she had to go through hoof camp. No! <laughs> where she learned the battlefield basics how to not get tangled in barbed wire how to not or how to lay down when under fire 
how to run to a bunker if she heard someone shout incoming she was originally what? kept are you are you okay what what if we made her little boots <laughs> <laughs> well i mean she had shoes just no boots right I know, but, uh, she could couldn't make, get boot scooting we could make her little boots <laughs> <laughs> she was originally kept in a pasture near the camp but she won over the hearts of so many soldiers that she ended up just being allowed to roam the camp free, sometimes wandering into some of her favorite soldiers' tents on cold nights to sleep next to their tent stoves. Okay, well, she's been through Huff Camp. She knows what she's doing. She knows the rules. Mm-hmm. She gets to have a warm, sleepy time place. Yep. And Reckless, she never met a food she didn't like, which, girl, <laughs> same. Girl. She was known for eating scrambled eggs, Coca-Cola, and beer. <gasps> She'd also eat bacon, toast, candy, chocolate, shredded wheat, PB&Js, and mashed potatoes. The doctor did have to let everyone know not to let her have more than two Cokes a day, though. Yeah. That's yeah. For all of us. I was going to say, good, good rule for everyone, really. On one occasion, she also was said to make a meal out of a horse blanket, and another time she munched on... $30 worth of poker chips. Shouldn't have left those there. You know there's a horse in camp. <laughs> Her first time out on duty, she was loaded with six shells. And she was said to have jumped straight into the air when the rifle was shot. When she <laughs> landed, she was terrified and shaking. Yeah, it was loud. Yeah. But she her said, hand- what the fuck? Right? Like, you're a horse. You don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm not a bitch, like, okay? I don't know what the fuck's going on. Okay. Yeah, big booms. But her handler was able to calm her down. And on the second shot, she just snorted. And by the end of the day, she was seen trying to eat the liner out of a helmet. <laughs> eh, she's like, eh, old news. Back to munch. Yep. Reckless was well known for learning a supply route quickly. And after a few times, she could be trusted to run the whole route without a handler because she was a 10 out of 10 best girl. Yeah. Her best day that earned her claim to fame, though, was the Battle of Vegas Hill. From March 26th through the 28th of 1953, she made 51 solo trips up and down the supply line, carrying 386 recoilless rounds which is 9,000 pounds of ammo. She covered 35 miles. Wow. The whole battle lasted three days. She was injured twice. Once she cut shrapnel over her eye and another time she cut shrapnel over her left flank. For her tremendous accomplishments and bravery, Reckless was promoted to corporal. Corporal Reckless. Yeah. (laughs) When she wasn't in the battlefield, Reckless was used in the comms department. She could string as much telephone wire as 12 men. And she became the first horse to ever participate in an amphibious landing. Oh, shit. The commanding officer of transport had halted loading operations when he saw the platoon on dock with Reckless. He refused to take her on board his clean ship. His ship had won an award for being the cleanest ship for two years running. He was not about to fuck that up. 
She was allowed on board after the Marines produced the loading plan, which had been approved by him, specifically listing Reckless as equipment. (laughs) But alas, much to the dismay of the commanding officer, once the ship was underway, Reckless became sick and made a mess on the ship's decks during the first part of that voyage. Oh, she gets seasick. Yeah. She could. And as a Marine, you know, it's no good. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. She could not be disembarked immediately due to a storm, but soon became accustomed to the motion of the ship and had no more problems. That's good. She she got better. They gave her some uh, Dramatine or Dram whatever the fuck. Yeah. Dramatine. She's fine. Randolph M. Pate, then the commander of the 1st Marine Division, gave Reckless a battlefield promotion from corporal to sergeant in a formal ceremony complete with a reviewing stand. (laughs) on april 10th 1954 several months after the war ended she was also given a red and gold blanket with insignia reckless was promoted again to staff sergeant which is an e6 rank uh, on august 31st 1959 at camp pendleton in california she's earned it this promotion was also awarded by pate uh and then the commandment of the marine corps uh, Pate personally presided over the ceremony and Reckless was honored with a 19-gun salute and a 1,700-man parade of Marines from her wartime unit. I love that. They're probably so proud to be there with her. I, know. I would be. I would be. She was among the first examples of an animal holding an official rank in a branch of United States military. It's not honorary. This is her rank. Yeah. For her heroic service in the Marine Corps, Reckless was awarded two Purple Hearts for the wounds received during the Battle of Vegas. Mm-hmm. A Marine Corps Good Conduct Medal, because she was the best girl. Mm-hmm. A Presidential Unit Citation with a Bronze Star. The National Defense Service Medal. A Korean Service Medal a United Nations Korea medal, (laughs) a Navy unit commendation, and a Republic of Korea presidential unit citation. She would wear these awards on her horse blanket, plus a French uh, foreign, I don't know, uh, the fifth Marines earned during World War I. While Reckless was still in Korea, uh, there was a campaign by American supporters to get the Marines to bring her to the United States. (laughs) An executive at Pacific Transport Lines, Stan Koppel, read the article and offered to let, or so an article was published, sorry. uh, Mm -hmm. And Stan Koppel read the article and offered to let Reckless ride free on one of his company's ships from Yokohama to San Francisco. Prior to her departure for America, a ceremony including a band for Reckless's rotation to the United States uh, was held during the halftime football game between the <laughs> Marine Corps and Army. Yay! Reckless left Korea for Japan aboard the first Marine aircraft wing transport plane. And then she sailed from Yokohama on October 22nd aboard the SS Pacific Transport. Due in San Francisco on November 5th. 
a typhoon delayed the ship's arrival until the evening of November 9th. Reckless and her caretakers stayed aboard until the next morning, where Reckless had gotten sick during the storm and was once knocked out of her stall onto the deck by the storm. But oh my gosh, she she got it together. She was fine. Do you imagine what that sounded like? (laughs) No, like a horse just (laughs) falling out of their stall after getting sick everywhere. Right? Oh my gosh. Uh, and once she arrived, there were problems getting her into the U.S. Once she arrived in San Francisco, the Department of Agriculture was insisting on a medical check and lab tests, which would have made our girl late to her own party. Uh, no, thank you. She's a military banquet was being held in her honor in D.C. An agreement was struck that they would draw her blood and let her go and do the testing later. Mm-hmm. Many of the Marines were offended on her behalf when they discovered that one of the tests was for an equine STD. <gasps> she is Not a lady. Our lady. Right? Not our lady. How dare you? How dare they? The night before she arrived, she once again ate her blanket. <laughs> but a new one with ribbons and insignia was made just in time for her disembarkation. Yeah, yeah, you can't leave that with her. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta hang that She's up. like, I'm hungry. <laughs> she was led off the ship by Lieutenant Penderson and set foot on American soil in San Francisco on November 10th, 1954. Coincidentally, the anniversary for the creation of the Marine Corps. Aww. For the Marine Corps birthday ball held that day, she rode in an elevator and then ate both cake and all of the flower decoration. <laughs> I love that for her. What a party. Reckless was kept by the Penderson family for a brief time before moving to a permanent home with the 5th Marines um, and the 1st Marine Division at Camp Pendleton. Hmm. Reckless was well cared for and treated as a VIP during her time at Camp Pendleton. I should hope so. The Marine Corps uh, was also careful not to allow her to be exploited by commercial interests. Yeah. Uh, She produced four foals in her time there. Uh, And now there is a plaque and photo commemorating her at the Camp Pendleton stables. The first race at Aqueduct Racetrack in New York was designated the Sergeant Reckless on November 10th of 1989, the best year. Yeah. And in 1997, Reckless was listed by Life Magazine as one of America's 100 all-time heroes. I agree. I agree. A monument by sculptor Jocelyn Russell of Reckless carrying ammunition shells and other combat equipment was unveiled on July 26, 2013 in the Semper Fidelis Memorial Park at the National Museum of the Marine Corps one day before the 60th anniversary of the Korean War. (sighs) There's a lock of her tail hair at the base of the statue. The uh, the statue's plaque includes a quote from Sergeant Harold Watley, who served in the battle alongside Sergeant Reckless. The spirit of her loneliness and her loyalty. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to cry. That's okay. That's all right, because it's worth crying over. This is a horse we're talking about. She's a hero. (laughs) In spite of the danger was something to behold, hurting, determined, and alone. 
That's the image I have imprinted in my head and my heart forever. There are five additional monuments to Sergeant Reckless around the country, all by the same sculptor. At the Marine Corps Base Camp in Pendleton, Oceanside, California. The Kentucky Horse Park in Lexington, Kentucky. The National Cowgirl Museum and Hall of Fame in Fort Worth, Texas. (laughs) Okay. And Barrington Hills Farm in Barrington Hills, Illinois. And the World Equestrian Center in Ocala, Florida. Oh, shit. I got to make a trip. I'm yep. like, I gotta go see this statue. Uh, they're all similar to the one located at the National Museum of the Marine Corps. A memorial to Sergeant Reckless is also at, and I'm so sorry, y- Yanchan Gore History Park uh, near the battlefield of the Outpost Vegas Battle, which was dedicated in 2018. So where she helps gotcha. the American soldiers. Where she served. Yeah. Bravely. (sighs) On uh, July 28th, 2016, Sergeant Reckless was posthumously awarded the Dickin Medal for her service between 1952 and 1953. And in November of 2019, she became the very first recipient of. (laughs) I'm going to cry again. Uh, No. She became the very first recipient of the new American equivalent of the Dickin Medal, the Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery. Uh, I remember seeing that for Sergeant Stubby, which I will write a letter if he's not given that. Like, we'll, we'll excuse have to look me. That up. I'm, we'll have to, because I don't remember seeing that. And if he doesn't have one, I'm going to raise some hell. Uh, in pop culture, I think there have been a couple movies made of her. Uh, also, there is a horse musical show issued by the Korea Racing Authority called Reckless 1953. You, I would love to see that. And a Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. <laughs> uh, Lieutenant Peanut Butter from season one, episode 13, is inspired by Sergeant Reckless. Oh, I love that. And those are my stories. Fantastic fantastic stories fantastic all around <laughs> uh <laughs> i was so glad we came back to animals as i was looking forward to this so yeah much. we had a couple really heavy episodes before this so yo they were so heavy but like good they're really good but mm-hmm. also like oh just like let's talk about animals for an hour and a half it's great yeah. And now our our hearts are warm. Yeah. Talking about animals. Well, thanks for for what happened to, you know, poor Miss O'Leary's cow. Poor Miss O'Leary's cow. Unless she was the culprit. I don't think she was. I don't think so. It was Pegleg. Yeah. It was Pegleg Sullivan. Yeah, Sullivan the legless. Yeah. Yeah. Who slandered Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Very rude. Very rude. O'Leary. I want that would be like a really good name for like a hot sauce. <laughs> Miss O'Leary's cow. Yeah, because it started the fire. Yeah, no, no. I, well, she didn't. She you knew it started the fire. You, no, you name it Peg Leg Hot yeah. Sauce. <laughs> you come out with a series, yeah. and each one is named after a potential culprit. <laughs> the sauces oh get spicier based on how close they get to who we think. 
I love this idea. Trademark TM. No one steal that. <laughs> it's uh, the name of the hot sauce line is We Didn't Start the Fire. Ooh, very we good. We didn't good. start the fire. <laughs> yeah. That's the jingle and TM. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you everybody uh, for, for joining us once again and waiting on us. We appreciate it. Um, and we look forward to talking to you next time. But in the meantime, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash history woes. You can also find us on our Instagram at also forward slash history woes. You can also find our link tree on our Instagram, which will link you to our podcast wherever you are streaming um, and also to the Patreon. So we will talk at you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.